Berlin is rather a part of the world than a city. The words of the writer Jean Paul back in the 1800s. In 1910, Carl Scheffler wrote, Berlin is a city condemned forever to becoming and never to being. In 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. Here in Berlin, one cannot help being aware that you are the hub around which turns the wheel of history. David Bowie once described 1970s Berlin as the greatest cultural extravaganza that one could imagine. More recently, in 2004, former mayor Klaus Wawereit coined the phrase, Berlin is poor but sexy. Poor but sexy, a cultural extravaganza, the hub on the wheel of history, always becoming, never being, a part of the world. For hundreds of years, people have been trying to understand and explain Berlin. Its attitude, its style, what makes it tick, and what draws people here from every corner of the earth. Today we begin another chapter in that tradition, a podcast that asks the question, why is Berlin a magnet for creativity and open culture? A curious look at the dynamic people, the inspiring places, and the open source projects of this town. Our journey begins now. For Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. This is Source Code Berlin. If you find yourself at the very beginning of a question, as we do here on the inaugural episode of Source Code Berlin, it's always good to take a bird's eye view of things. Before you get into the specifics of the issue, you look at the overall situation. And even better, you get to know the history of what came before, the pieces of the puzzle leading up to today. The earliest evidence of human activity in the place that we know today as Berlin takes us back to 1192. The earliest evidence of Berlin as a place where people think and do things a bit differently, that one is still up for debate. But many a historian and an observer has tried to pinpoint when exactly this city started attracting creative and dedicated minds, not to mention the unique projects that might be connected to what today is known as Europe's Silicon Alley. Seemingly the place for programmers, coders, startups, technologists of all kinds. One modern-day example of such an observer is the writer, journalist, and historian Marcel Kruger, a person for whom Berlin has always been a source of inspiration and curiosity, the subject of much of his work. To get the bird's-eye view that might set us up for diving into open projects, I decided to seek out Marcel and hear how he would set the scene, a conversation that took place outdoors in a location that might offer clues as to what is going on here, how did Berlin become what it is today? Oh, where are we, by the way? Uh, we're in Görlitzer Park. Um, well, it doesn't really look like a park. There's not as many trees and bushes and everything. It is actually it's a former train station. But if I remember correctly, it was also part of the wall because right behind us was East Berlin and the canal. And down there um, is the Spree. Um, so this part of Berlin was actually surrounded by the GDR on three sides. So it was like the last um, outpost of, of West Berlin in this area here. That's, that's like the quintessential alternative Berlin area. So, um, and you'll, 
see and hear that quite often when you walk around Kreuzberg is this SO36, which is the former postcode. Um, there's even there's a venue that's that's called SO36, and um, it, people use it to identify themselves coming from Kreuzberg, being in Kreuzberg, and that's actually the the, the, the postcode of that old Berlin area here in the west. Um, and it has always been um, an area that had an alternative punkish left-wing um, atmosphere because what happened in the 80s was that everyone who moved to Berlin um, was not supposed um, to do military or civil service in Germany. So because it had like the status of a, of a frontline city of sorts or often special open city, um, so the Berlin government was not supposed to have any man or standing army from Germans. So everyone who moved here was exempt from civil service that everyone had to do in Germany uh, in the other areas. When you when you become 18, you get eligible and you have to do like either, or you had to do like one year of, of uh, military service or two years of civil service. Mm. Um, so lots of artists and people who actually try to avoid that year once they're done with, with college or just didn't want to have anything to do with, with the army, they actually moved here to be exempt from that service. Um, and that whole area was initially, I think it was the beginning of the 70s, end of the 70s, was um, they had planned to destroy everything here because they were planning to build a new um, circle motorway around West Berlin. Um, so and then the obvious thing happened then the rents were lowered because the the, the landlords or the owners of the places were just trying to get rid of, of the houses as, as quickly as possible because they knew of those plans. So then all the artists and students and people with, with no money basically moved in here. Um, and there were also a few empty buildings right behind us um, where, where squatters moved in. And um, so this became like the one main um, alternative squatter punk lifestyle area in Berlin, even before all the other areas like Friedrichshain or, or Neukölln were as as interesting for an alternative lifestyle so this is the quintessential berlin hmm. alternative area wow so that's something to really soak in i mean uh this aspect of people who came here consciously part of why they came here this is the era of the the 80s yeah so it's 70s and 80s yeah yeah so uh, we're talking thousands of people coming here and part of their philosophy potentially is uh i don't want anything to do with the military yeah and potentially, I don't want to have to do anything with, with a state that's that's built on money and conservative values. They were um, so Berlin was the first city that had like uh, student protest in '68. So um, there was a very famous um, the Shah from Iran was was visiting, and that was the. Um, the one main event that led to quite a lot of, of student protests in, in 68 and afterwards and also led to well more left-wingish kind of tendencies and this was actually also the, the germ cell for the, the German terrorist um, group, the Red Army Faction in the 70s. They also came from the student protests in Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, so it was always a place where people that had an idea of an alternative lifestyle um, not based on what they saw in, in the rest of capitalist Germany. So that was always a place for people to come here who, who were trying out other lifestyles or other ways to approach to approach life and, and philosophy. We're talking with Marcel Kruger, um, a writer, journalist, observer of life, uh, a Berliner, as well as a Dubliner. <laughs> Some very closely linked words. Um, 
As you know, Marcel, we're, I'm here learning, right? In a way, trying to get to know the connections between both the past and the present. And also, more specifically, if we get into this idea of creative, open Berlin, uh, how did that happen, right? Now, uh, when you see what's going on in the city, I mean, I suppose even 2014 is, is vastly different from 2000, and as you've just described, the 80s. Um, does this theme of being open, of even co-working, since co-working is, is one of the themes of, of some of these programs, and, and, and the city, was that always there, or is that a recent arrival? Yes and no. <laughs> um, so, so I guess that that concept of, of, of openness and, and co-working, so helping your your fellow human out in whatever way possible, also in, in a professional way, I guess, that was always here. So um, if if you look at the origins of, of, of the punk movement, which is very strong here in, in this area, so they were always having this kind of... Uh, ideal of, of sharing and and especially when you when you look at the houses where the squatters lived um, they were always hosting concerts and 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 markets where people could could come and and sell their homemade marmalade and and hand knit socks and these type of things so there was always this i think this 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 undercurrent of um, of of openness or an alternative lifestyle in berlin um, i don't think that there was a link to the, the technical side of things because that's a that's a very um, current development, um, and even though this is this is quite I'd say hyped at the moment, so everyone knows about um, that Berlin is allegedly the, the new Silicon Valley in in the middle of Europe, and and lots of people are drawn here because of both this 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 open space and co working um, atmosphere that makes it easy to to develop your own app or whatever uh, footprint you want to leave in the digital world or become a, a coder whatsoever so I think that's that's absolutely a draw but um, Berlin still is a broke city so even though it has this 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 very positive and, and open atmosphere and then it's like a a very European city, a very young city where, where people come to, it still is in, in terms of GDP, it's a broke city so it getting loads of um financing from the rest of Germany still so um, and even while that is changing but you just need to have, have a look at, at that never ending story of, of the, the new airport they were planning to open two years back and still not open it still cost the taxpayer 20,000 euros a day mm -hmm. just to keep that thing running um, so Berlin never had like this it was never a successful city it was always an interesting city but it was never um, a city like like I'd say like Munich or Hamburg, so it was never a harbor city where goods were coming in and people could be successful also in financial terms. It was always an interesting um, city to go to, but it never made money. Times, they are a-changing. Every city lives that reality, whether you're moving up, down, or sideways. As we sat watching kids on bikes, young adults laughing about something on their mobile phones, and of course the drug dealers standing vigilant watching who enters and leaves the park, I wondered about what changes are to come. What happens to poor but sexy in 5, 10, or 50 years? And beyond that, what keeps today's Berliners here? What makes someone choose this place instead of San Francisco, Rio, or even Dublin, as in the case of Marcel? There's a lot of change at the moment. So Berlin was always, and when I first arrived here, was was really struck about all the open spaces that Berlin has. So it's a it's a really vast city, and it only has like four and a half million people living here. But the spaces that that 
you were seeing and experiencing in Berlin, um, they were just immense. Um, and, and not only talking about like the former wall area where now you basically got like a long line of parks running through the city, but but overall it was was a very spacious city, um, and so there was never. And I think this is also. Uh, um, rooted in in the history as this divided city, so there was never huge factories or any large industry in Berlin that that could contribute to making it a, a non-broke city. They were destroyed, um, right? I mean, yeah, 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 existed, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then they were more or less fenced in by the the Russians and and in East Germany on all sides. So they in in West Berlin there was no space to build. East Berlin had no money to build, uh, uh, also because the Russians um, removed lots of the old infrastructure they, they found at the end of the war and brought this back to Russia because of all the destruction there. So they actually removed like whole factories from East Germany uh, back to Russia. So both sides had no money uh, in the first place. Um, and I think now, because you, what you see is at the moment that like all these empty spaces are being filled up. So like the, the biggest thing you see in Berlin at the moment is um, is all the building activity yeah. so and potentially i guess if if a city still has like this so much space to fill with industry with with structures that bring money in then i think it can change um and i think this is one of the reasons why like bigger cities like paris and and london they're all growing outwards um because this is where new industry can can be put put up and new factories can be put up and then it's still counting as contributing to to the city's wealth and and not to the countries so i so i'd say traditionally berlin has always been broke both due to mismanagement and the structure that was that was in place all the time and i guess it might it might change a lot and quite quickly in the next um couple of years and then it would be interesting to see how all the startup economy here in berlin contributes to to that change yes. and in what ways <laughs> Why do you choose to uh, live and work in this city? <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I didn't actually plan to uh, to be here, so I, I was living in Dublin um, completely, and I was was really happy there. But then I, I I was always having friends in Berlin, and I was always interested in reading about the city, just because I'm really interested in history. Um, and this was like one of the, the the most fascinating cities in Europe. And then I got uh, basically a job offer two years back. Uh, um, the, and then I said, okay, look, um, I can just try it out because I knew it was, if you're not looking specifically in a city center to live, it was still comparatively cheap, especially compared to, to Ireland at the time. Um, so, and it was just a thing I, I tried out and I really like it here. And um, the, the historical part of, of the city is really what, what, what I like and what I like to explore. And just because I, I was mentioning this, this vastness, um, I have the feeling, and I'm here for almost three years now, um, I have this feeling I can, if I would, for the next three years, every every weekend, I would do something else and try to find a new area of the city I haven't discovered yet. I would still have not seen all of Berlin. It's mm -hmm. it's it's that big uh, and it's that that interesting. It's also that that aspect that Berlin is never ending and I can always find something relating to the GDR, to Nazi Germany, to Weimar Berlin, and all these areas are so easily approachable here in the city because of the structure, and that's something that I really like mm. about Berlin. Do you find that um, the what is said about Berlin in terms of what you can find here, how you can live here, matches the reality? The reputation it, at the moment, yes, it it does. 
Um, that is also changing. I was just mentioning the, the low rents, which have always been a big draw for, for people to come to Berlin because you can, if, if you have an artistic and creative lifestyle, you're an artist, you're a writer whatsoever, uh, it was always easier to sustain yourself in Berlin because basically you're, your money worked more or worked longer than it did in other European cities. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people from all over Europe and all over the globe come to Berlin because with, with a part-time job that would not finance them in Sydney, they can get along pretty well here in Berlin. Um, but I think this will, will change extremely. And I, I don't know if, if Berlin will be able to keep up this, this open and, and welcoming structure or if it will become like any other bigger European city that has like a set structure, you know, with, with a quite wealthy center where the tourists and, and, and the investors live. And then people with low income, elderly people, creative people are always getting pushed out to the, the outskirts of the city, like the, the Bonneu in Paris, for example. Um, and there is this, you see these tendencies, like the whole gentrification issue is a big thing in Berlin at the moment. Um, And there is also that tendency that you see that because people, unlike my, my parents' generation, don't want to move to the suburbs, so um, they stay in town. And uh, that means that people with money come in, um, they're willing to, to buy houses, um, investors move in, they're renovating the houses and trying to sell them off to people. And then if you have like a pensioner living in that house for 20 years, they cannot afford The, the rent that is, is raised by the landlord because of the renovations mm. and the only option for them is then to find cheaper accommodation somewhere else and this is mostly then further away from the city center. So um, at the moment all this is still here so it's still uh, very easy to find a place to live in Berlin and, and very easy to, um, to find your own way in the city and in your, in your area and your Keats but I guess that might change a lot and, and quite quickly as well, yeah. But so you do find it to be a place that preserves, you're talking about the open spaces that exist, of course, the history. I mean, we're here at a former train station. I'm looking, I could still picture the train coming through. Um, is this a city that still preserves the past uh, and makes use of it, or does it destroy and, and rebuild? That's a, that's a good question, and I don't know if because I'm, I'm very interested in structures from the past, um, not, not only in physical structures as in, as in old buildings or, or preserving um, the traffic layout of, of a place or the, or the street grid or whatever. Um, but I, I feel that if you're changing that too much, you're also changing the, the perception that people have of a place. So if everything becomes plastic and full of malls and, and the streets are getting wider and there's more space for cars, obviously it will change how people perceive a place and, and how they, they feel in, in, in just walking around there. Um, but from what I see in Berlin today, and I'm only speaking of Berlin today because I really cannot... I don't think anybody can predict what it will look like in five or ten years. And this is also one of the Berlin things that has always been a very... city has was always changing a lot. Um, you just look at the last hundred years, but I don't want to digress. Um, um, so at the moment, it still allows for this openness and, and you still have these structures which are not necessarily protected in a way. So there's no no authority or no governmental body stepping in and saying, okay, we need to protect this, uh, this, this, this atmosphere or this, this approach that people have. But just because it's it's working for the people who are here it's it's protected internally i guess um so at the moment yes it's still there and it's and it's nice to see and it's it's very positive to be in the place at the moment yeah 
so I can absolutely confirm this. Hmm. Based on conversations I have with people, uh, it seems like the focus for many, I guess it's especially people who work in things like programming or, or technology-related uh, jobs, is often about the job, the challenges, the interests, more than it is about the money or the profit. I mean, that's a bold statement. I wonder if Berlin differs at all. I mean, why should it, really? But uh, do you see anything like that? I, from, from what I see, I can absolutely confirm this because this is, I think it, this was always part of the whole startup co-working space scene that it's always, for example, I was yesterday evening, I was, I was attending um, uh, um, after work beer, uh, um, get together in one of the, the co-working spaces here in Kreuzberg and it was after six it was a really nice gathering that lots of people work in there and then a few people from outside were having a few drinks in a, in a large kind of cantinish space but there were still people sitting there with the headphones working away all the time while people were mingling around them having a chat having a beer so they were that focused and 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 that transfixed in, in, in their work. So I think this is one of the aspects that comes with it. It's like this, you're not working nine to five, you're flexible, you, you, you can do it. And I think that people also take pride from, from that aspect that it's not somebody telling them, okay, look, you have to finish now and you can go home. It's that if, if they really want to get this thing done that they're working on, um, I think they're absolutely willing to commit more of their time and their energy without, you know, making up a spreadsheet and seeing if if compared to like proper working hours or, or office hours they their effort is still worth what they're doing so i think that's that's still a, a large part of that people don't look at the financial aspects of things once they're in it because they're so convinced of of what they're doing and they think they're doing a good thing um yeah absolutely so still that thing that whole thing comes with with the whole culture yeah let me try something else then is that particularly this is a big responsibility for you here is that particularly German? Is that particularly Berlin? Or is that even particularly programmer uh, culture? I'd say the latter. So it's, it's, and I think there's like a big global aspect that, that comes with that. So I, I guess that if, if you're a German programmer working in Berlin, you could, you would found, would find no problem with, with going to San Francisco the, the next day to Silicon Valley or in work in any other environment in, in London, in, in Japan. So there might be a cultural difference, but there might not be this. So I don't think it's location-based or, or nationality-based. So I think it's really has something to do with the job and, and the culture and with, with how people in that area see themselves. So I would not say that this is a particular Berlin thing in, in that regard. And so going forward, do you... Do you see this as continuing to grow? Uh, in other words, the idea of, of if it is the tech industry, if it's programmers or whatever else, people coming from outside Berlin, people come from coming uh, coming from all over in Germany, coming to this city because of its reputation, but also because of the actual work. Do you think this this trend continues, or is there some change in the air? No, I, mean, I think I think it will continue and it will grow um, because the. The biggest sector in Berlin that's at the moment bringing in the, the most money for the city is, is tourism. Oh. Um, so that's like I think sixty or seventy percent of of the actual money the city makes is is through the whole tourism structure. Um, and there is a lot of change in that area, 
and I, I don't think that the whole sector can grow and grow and grow until it finds all of the city, um, just because it's not sustainable. Uh, at some point, you, you cannot just make every second house a holiday apartment uh, mm -hmm. building or, or in a hostel. Um, so I think this will this will change quite quickly, um, and then I think because there's a really good framework and structure in place already for for the the co-working startup. Um, programming area, I think this will definitely start to grow more and bigger. Hmm. Absolutely. Without losing anything in terms of quality of this place. <laughs> That remains to be seen. This, this is the thing. And I think this is always something, uh, if if you're having a, a cutting edge and, and early adopter culture, then obviously there's lots of, of things being tried out and things are very edgy and uh, people are perceived as... Um, some sort of role model but when it once it becomes like a, a normal industry i'd say then obviously you will have like normal jobs and and the more standard structure that's being in place and some aspects of this whole kind of um edginess will then become your standard nine to five but i think that's always the case with whatever industry is or, or new industry yeah or the alternative way to do things now Be, despite being alternative, maybe it's not nine to five anymore, right? It's yeah. 10 to six or even later, but yeah. still that becomes the, also the standard or something. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be a rebellion at some point in some form. Yeah, but I, w I wonder what, what, what that will look like. So, I mean, obviously there will, there will always be people who are against. So once the structure becomes standard, you will always have like somebody arguing against it. And I think this is just normal change that's happening everywhere. I don't think that's a very particular mm -hmm. Berlin thing. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to see what, what, what will happen in the next couple of years. All right. Well, Marcel, in case we don't get to talk again, <laughs> it was a pleasure uh, sitting with you and, and hearing a little bit about uh, this city and, and, and including your, your views and your feelings on things. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Okay, so in terms of the big picture, there's good news with the spirit of innovation and making something out of nothing, and there's what I'd call the bad news. The city is broke, perhaps too sexy for its own good. There's plenty more to explore on all these fronts. But since it's our first program, let's change gears. Let's come in from the park and sit inside one of those driving forces of open culture that we referred to so often in the first half of this program. This is, after all, a Wikimedia Deutschland production, so why not visit them to hear about what it is they're busy with and how they fit into the bigger picture of open, accessible information in a place that is so famous for it. My guest and guide offering us a glimpse into that world is none other than free software and free culture enthusiast, project manager for the Wikidata Project, and president of the KDEEV Foundation, Lydia Pincher. You know, I look around, uh, for example, here at Wikimedia Deutschland, and I think 
if I, if I just arrived here for the first time, wait, I did. But if I, if I just arrived here for the first time, and in this city as well, because that's part of it, um, you know, you would say, well, there's something big going on here that goes far beyond Wikipedia uh, entries in, you know, on, in managing them and so forth. I mean, how would you start to explain it to people if, if you wanted to explain what is going on here? What, are, what is everyone busy with? Everyone is busy with giving more people more access to more knowledge. That's what Wikimedia is about. Our vision is to give everyone access to all the human knowledge to make this world a better place. It's a long journey, but we're making progress. For example, with our biggest project here at Wikimedia Germany called Wikidata. Wikidata is a central place where we store data like the number of inhabitants of Berlin or the date of birth of a famous person, um, the architect of um, a famous building, and so on and so on. Each Wikipedia can then use this data to improve their articles. And the reason why we're doing this is that we have nearly 300 Wikipedias, but it's really hard for a lot of them to build up a big article base. Like There are four or five really big Wikipedias, and then there's a lot of small ones, which means that all these small Wikipedias do not give people all the information that, for example, English Wikipedia has in their language. There are Wikipedias that are written by like five people. And of course, five people can maintain or even write uh, the number of articles that English Wikipedia has or, or German Wikipedia has. So we need to give them technical tools to to make it easier for them. And Wikidata is the biggest one we have for that. Yeah, when I think about it, traditionally, if I wanted to know such information, I would go on as an English speaker, English Wikipedia, and I would look up the entry of a city, and then there is that part of the entry that gives me the, the numbers. But what you're saying is there's going to be a central place that's not dependent on, on language. Exactly, and that's Wikidata. And then each Wikipedia can basically get these numbers from there, and they only have to be updated once in that place, instead of in 300 languages. Yeah, so it's, it's on the one hand small, yet on the other hand extremely revolutionary and going to take a lot of work. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we've been working on this for the past two and a half years, and we're not nearly done yet. <laughs> one of the aspects that I'm curious about, and, and I think we're going to be exploring on this program, is uh, open source development. And uh, from what I understand, this building, this very building, there's a lot of open source development going on. I, I wonder uh, how does Wikimedia Deutschland fit into the, the bigger picture of open source development? Is this uh, a mothership of sorts? Is this one tiny in the fleet? Or? Well, um, in terms of how much we do, it's of course tiny. There's so much open source development going on out there. On the other hand, what we do has such a huge impact. A top five website mm -hmm. that is improved every single day here. Um, and I think that, so actually putting work into this is one part. The other part is making people aware that developing software in an open source way has a lot of benefits and can do so much good. And of course, we can do that um, much easier with the reach we have than some other uh, open source projects. Hmm. For example, with MediaWiki, it was originally built 
to run Wikipedia on. Mm -hmm. But since it is released as open source, there are so many wikis out there also running the same software, but for completely different purposes. So there's a big wiki farm that, for example, has a, a Pokemon wiki or a Star Wars wiki or um, a, a wiki about feminism and yeah. so on. And they're all running on MediaWiki mm -hmm. just because re uh, Wikimedia released the software as open source and it can be freely reused. Yes. Yeah, I'm a regular user of the Seinfeld Seinfeldpedia uh, so that I can look up Seinfeld episodes. It's very important. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it takes a certain mentality, a certain profile. I mean, not to say you're all the same, but a certain way of thinking. Um, how would you describe the way of thinking that, that brings you to projects like these and to a place like this? It certainly does um, attract a certain kind of people. Um, you have to be comfortable working in the open. You have to be comfortable with people looking at your work and, and criticizing it, but also praising it. Um, that is really, really important because if you can't do that, you're going to have a hard time in, in an open source project. At the same time, it needs people who have an attention for, for detail and who want to really build something that's technically excellent mm -hmm. um, and to take pride in their work uh, on the project. Yeah, I see some of the, the examples of that openness just in terms of how meetings are run and how often they happen and how everyone shares uh, what they're working on. And uh, yeah, this is the type of working environment that a couple of years ago, maybe 20 years ago, was completely unheard of. But I guess now is, is starting to grow as a, as a popular format. Yeah. And we are also seeing more and more companies that do not develop open source adopt some of these principles, at least, um, use the principles of open source development in-house to improve their projects and so on, um, because they see the benefit that it has. Yeah. Which makes me curious, uh, in, who are your colleagues, I mean, beyond this workplace, other institutions, other groups of people, uh, who are they? Who are your peers out there? <laughs> oh, there are so many peers. Um, me personally, I, I work a lot with, um, obviously, my colleagues here at Wikimedia Germany. We also work a lot together with the Wikimedia Foundation in um, San Francisco, who does the big part of the development of the software around uh, Wikipedia. In my free time, I'm the president of another uh, open source organization, uh, KDEEV. So I work a lot with that, and we also work a lot with the Free Software Foundation Europe, um, who does advocacy around free software. Um, yeah, there's a lot of um, collaboration going on, yeah. especially in Berlin, because there are so many projects. The idea is that we cannot make the world a better place just on our own. We can only do it in co collaboration with others mm -hmm. doing similar work, and that's what we're doing. You cannot change the world on your own. A statement that says a lot about this community and what drives them to do what they do. Now, this is part of the inspiration for this podcast project, which we're starting today, to learn more about the community, what they're doing, and of course, 
how and why they do it. Now, in the case of Lydia, beyond her already major work at Wikimedia Deutschland, she also plays a pivotal role in another vibrant open source project. So KDE is a project that develops software for end users, mm -hmm. um, initially centered around uh, the Linux desktop. But we also now have a lot of um, applications for uh, Mac OS and uh, Windows, for example. Um, we have applications that run on your mobile phone. We have great painting applications photography, management applications, and office suite, and so on. All developed uh, by volunteers under, under this project. Yeah. And although uh, it seems that there's a, a great core of people in, in Germany, this is an international community of sorts. Right. Uh, it's a global project. It was started in um, Germany, in Tübingen, mm -hmm. but it has contributors all around the world. We have uh, a large uh, contributor base in uh, India, for example, or in Brazil, so, which is really cool because you get to see so many different people, so many different cultures. Um, I travel around a lot to, to meet those people, and it's, it's really great. Yeah. I'm curious about you, uh, Lydia. Before all of this, right, back in 2006, I think you were already interested in a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, but you weren't here in Berlin. You were elsewhere, I believe. Uh, how, how did coming to this city connect with... Your, the big questions that you wanted to, to tackle, to work on? So I moved to Berlin from Karlsruhe, where I studied, um, for this job at Wikimedia to work on Wikidata. And funnily enough, I um, ended up in this job because of all the open source work I've done before, um, because I met the right people and I had the right uh, expertise and so on. Hmm. So my open source work probably helped me more than my studies <laughs> in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't a case that you were thinking, I'm going to end up in Berlin or I should end up in Berlin? No, definitely not. <laughs> um, I mean, Berlin is great, but I might as well have ended up in New York or mm -hmm. Buenos Aires. Who knows? Mm -hmm. How do you think it compares now? I mean, uh, staying in a place, a city like this, in an environment like this, or versus being, for example, in San Francisco? Um, Berlin is pretty great. Uh, I, I really like it. Uh, it's the right people here. Yeah. On the other hand, San Francisco, sure, is also great, and I visit every now and then. Hmm. But living here is better. <laughs> How is it possible? Because there are places in this world, uh, even in, on this continent, where um, there is not as much support for, for the kind of work you're doing, yet you get good support here. Right. Um, it really depends on how well you can make the public aware of your work and why it's important and how much you can convince them to support you. I, I see this contrast very clearly um, in my work for KDE and, and Wikimedia. Uh, KDE does have quite some support, but by no means on the, on the same scale as Wikimedia, simply because we do not have a top five website where we can run banners and ask people to support us. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that really makes a difference. Yeah. In a way, being, being known, as you mentioned, being known yes. and, and getting people to, to somehow get involved, even if it's just through donation. Right. If one of our listeners um, uses free software regularly, think about making a contribution to this project, mm. be it either through some money or 
uh, actually time and, and expertise that you can lend them because most of them are going to be so happy to to hear from you. Do you, do you think you've seen big changes in the world of free software in, in, in the last 10 years? How, how different is the world now from what it was then? It's very different. Um, and I think the biggest change is that open source has become mainstream. A lot of companies either do open source themselves or adopt some of it in practice. I don't know any company that isn't at least using open source software on a pretty significant scale, which was not the case 10 years ago. (laughs) So yeah, I I think a lot has changed. Um, But I think at the same time, we're losing a bit on the ideological side. Less and less people do free software for the sake of free software mm-hmm. um, to give users more more power over their system, for example, to give them the chance to influence the software they use. I, I think we're losing parts of that. Why? I'm not sure. I think it has quite some some to do with the fact that a lot more um, commercial interest exists around um, open source right now, which of course is not very interested in giving users more control. It's more a side effect for them. How, how do we change that again? How do we shift it around again? I'm not sure. I wanted to ask also about other elements of um, what people are busy with uh, here at, at Wikimedia Deutschland, um, including this aspect of um, diversity. Tell me a little bit about what's going on in terms of um, diversity, because I see the word written and I see uh, reports written. And of course, I do realize, you know, who uses Wikipedia? Therein lies the question um, about profiles and, and who's more dominant, and who's not, and so forth. Right. So we see that basically everyone who has access to internet and computers uses Wikipedia. But when it comes to actually creating Wikipedia, this looks very, very different. Um, we have a huge bias in our editor base, which might or might not be a problem according to whom you ask. We here at Wikimedia Germany think it is a problem that we need to solve because if you have a very small subset of people writing about all human knowledge, they're not going to be able to do that if they have a very specific view of the world. So one one example for uh, is fashion designers. The group of people who writes Wikipedia currently is not very interested in them. But of course they are important to know about and people want to read about them. But in order to have articles about them, you need people to write them and to to research them and so on. So we are trying to shift the editor base for quite some time now already to get in more people who are different than the people we already have. Which is not to say that the people we already have are bad in any way. It's just a very selective group. Yeah, I've heard that there's a 
the example posed to me was there's more articles about Lord of the Rings than there are about um, nations in Africa or something like that. For example, yeah. yeah, yeah. But and again, I'm sure even the people who wrote the articles on Lord of the Rings would admit uh, it's not their specialty. So maybe right, we need others. Yeah. So so that becomes a question of how to get new people from different backgrounds, backgrounds that haven't been writing, to write. Yes, exactly. And there, there are different ways to, to get them um, involved. For example, here at, uh, in the office, we regularly hold editathons around um, topics of interest for women. So we invite women to write about famous, um, famous female role models that they have and so on. Um, there are outreach programs. We try to make it easier to edit through changing the technology um, because that is a significant hurdle still for some groups. Making it, and making it easier. Yes, because editing a Wikipedia article is not always easy <laughs> for, mm -hmm. for some people. Um, so, yeah, we are working on, on making that easier. Uh, I have to admit, uh, it was the first time I learned of uh, such a, a thing. Next door to us, where we're sitting right now, there is a, I believe it's called a community uh, manager, or at least there's community people working, and that you could actually request support if there's something you want to do, like take photos of an event where there's no photos, uh, especially with uh, in, in, on wiki media. Um, that's something I've never heard of, this, this uh, sort of outreach. Is that outreach? No, it's community support. It's community support, right. Um, and it's, it's very important because, for example, you want to have really good pictures of famous people to illustrate their, their article. Um, but getting a hold of freely licensed pictures of those people is really hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what we do is support volunteers to go to events where they show up and so on. And this is just one part. Um, another part is you want to write an article about a very specific scientific topic and you need literature for that. So we, um, we make it possible for you to, to get those books or whatever it is. Outreach and support, two rare and extremely helpful practices when it comes to sustaining a community. This part of the conversation got me thinking more about all the projects that have similar missions and how they measure their own progress, what satisfaction they get on a daily basis or a yearly basis. Can such a moment really be pinpointed, the moment where you know you're on the right track, you know your project is going somewhere? Is this the kind of uh, work where you every day you see a little progress, or is this the kind of work where it, it's more of a, a long-term thing? Is it done in little, little bites? Uh, how, how do you look at what you're doing at the end of a week? Uh, what do you say to yourself? Um, so at the end of the week uh, for Wikidata, we have a weekly summary oh. that uh, summarizes the most important things we've done to keep everyone in the community up to date. Um, and kind of show progress, yeah. Um, so that is my personal way to see this is what we've done this week. Um, but in the end, really, we're thinking quite long-term with Wikidata because we started two and a half years ago with the actual development, but the idea for Wikidata is from 2005. 
So <laughs> it is really a long-term project because it is so big and so many changes to a website that has been around for 10 years and that has found its way of working and introducing a fundamental change to that is not always easy. No. And yeah, you make baby step progress and that's fine. Yeah. In the end, what matters is again, giving more people more access to more knowledge and that's what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like the kind of changes that you're making in a couple of years or less will be so fundamental. So everywhere and affecting so many parts of anybody's use of the internet. But right now, when you talk about them, it, it's people, I don't think people can see it yet. That's the amazing thing, right? What we're talking about will be everywhere, yet as I speak to you right now, you might not know what we're talking about, this or what it looks like. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But yes, rest assured, in a year or two, you will find Wikidata in a lot of places. Well, Lydia Pinter, it's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, wish you all the best of luck with your work. We'll be, uh, we'll be watching, but not in a bad way. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Thank you so much. In this program, we started with a bit on the history to understand how we got here as a city, as different communities that arrived in this place in this time. Though both voices were discussing slightly different topics, they both exist in this environment that is today's creative, innovative, maybe crazy Berlin. My favorite lessons today are probably about things like, one, the work that people are doing here can often be done somewhere else, but they choose to do it in Berlin because of some factor that it feels more livable, more comfortable. That's something that we can explore further. I also learned that people who came to this city, who've been coming to this city for many years, are not necessarily in search of wealth. Although everyone surely wants to make a living and perhaps live well, there is this other aspect, this other element of doing something big, doing something unique, focusing on the work or the project and yes, the money then comes second. This is something different to a lot of places in the world. And then there's this element of not working alone. In this town, it would seem you just don't go it alone. You work within and with other communities, other groups of people who have perhaps a related mission or at the very least similar values when it comes to sharing information for the greater good, for some larger mission. That's also something very unique to this place. Of course, there are also the questions about the future, uh, the downsides when it comes to money or, or a lack of support for things like open source development. Uh, that's something worth exploring as well in future episodes. But for now, this is the starting point on the road to understanding why this community, why this type of work, and why in this place, in this moment in time. So many moving parts to what is a very interesting bigger picture. And I'm very glad to have you along for the journey. Some final vital information. Source Code Berlin is a Wikimedia Deutschland podcast Find us at sourcecode.berlin or follow us on Facebook, sourcecodeberlin, or Twitter at SRCCodeBerlin. Music featured on today's program was by Lache Swing. This podcast is published under a CCBYSA 4.0 license. 
and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening. We are. We are.